This is the Education Gadfly Show. I mean, I've never consolidated a district personally, but it I sounds mean, expensive. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, David Griffith of the Thomas B. Ford Institute, filling in for Mike Petrilli here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordInstitute.org. And now please welcome my special guest for this week, Vic Klatt, a principal of Penn Hill Group, who has been involved in federal education policy for more than two decades, including as a senior education official in the executive branch and as the top education staff member in the U.S. House of Representatives. Vic, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It is obviously a very busy and chaotic time here in the nation's capital. We've got a snowstorm in addition to all the other sorts of storms. Are you joining us from the nation's capital or are you calling from somewhere else? I am in Falls Church right at this moment, and I live on Lake Barcroft, looking out at the lake and the snowfall. Very good. Also joining us, Checker Finn, the one and only. Checker, it's snowing cats and dogs here in Southeast D.C. What's it look like where you are? It's gently flickering down outside our condo window in uh, Chevy Chase, Maryland, but we're cozy enough and glad to be with you again. Wonderful to have you as always. Well, guys, you both uh, have enough education experience here in the general vicinity to put me to shame. So I'm largely going to step out of the way. Uh, The first question I think that I have concerns the topic of the moment, which is the stimulus. As we're taping this, listeners, negotiations are ongoing, but it appears that Joe Biden and his allies will probably push through something, presumably without a great deal of support from the Republican side of the caucus. What's going to happen and what do we think it means for schools? Well, I want to first, I want to ask Vic whether he really thinks they're going to push through the version that has $180 billion for schools, or is that going to get whittled down along the way? Honestly, if I had to guess right now, I'd say the odds are more in favor of them passing something close to that number. The number may change a bit over time than not. It really all depends on a few Senate Democrats like Joe Manchin, uh, Senator Sinema from Arizona, Senator Kelly from Arizona, and a few others. But the path we're headed on today, it, it looks like it's a real possibility. So when I read that the Republican alternative has $20 billion for schools and and the Biden version has $180 billion for schools, I'm obliged to ask, what does the additional $160 billion do? So the stated purpose of the money is to go towards helping schools at both the K-12 and higher ed level deal with COVID. COVID in the legislation is defined very, very broadly. It's everything from PPP supplies to schools, to deep cleans, to sometimes improving HVAC systems. You know, on one hand, that's sort of the standard stuff. However, there's also language in the bills that have funded this so far that allow money uh, to go for things like learning loss. However, it's defined at the state and local level and series of educational purposes that, in some people's definition, go beyond just straight dealing with COVID. Uh, Although learning loss is certainly a part of the COVID situation, too. It's a lot of money. And for um, old guys like us, Checker, honestly, it makes your head spin. Because when you you stop and think about just numbers here, the last bill that just passed in December, by the way, the money hasn't even all gone completely out the door yet and certainly has not been spent. They had a little bit more than $80 billion go out for education. They're now talking about adding $170 billion for education. 
So if this happens, which it might in the next couple of months, within a three-month time period here or so, we're talking about $250 billion. That's on top of the regular fund. So this isn't in place of Title I and IDA and things like that. It's on top of that. To give you a little more context here, Title I normally, I forget the exact numbers, normally funded at about $16, $17, 18000000000 billion. IDA is about the same. So we have like $30 billion normally that goes out. This is six multiples times of that. And it, it really makes your head spin. I'm struggling to just try to figure it all out, honestly. The yeah. quick pro quo question. Will the Democrats, if they get their version, Biden and their congressional friends, be willing to insist that schools and colleges that get this money must reopen? President Biden, to his credit, has been pretty vocal about trying to encourage schools as strong as he possibly can at the federal level. But the direct answer to your question is no, they won't, because there really is no way to do it. At, at the federal level. I would also point out, not to get too much into inside baseball Washington speak here, but the process that, that they're filing to pass this next bill is called reconciliation. The reconciliation process doesn't really allow you to do policy. It's basically just numbers. So you can't really get into, even if you wanted to do something like that, Checker, it's very difficult to do in the reconciliation process. You can't, you can't even do a quid pro quo like that, like, like a condition. Not really. Wow. It's pretty hard. There may be a way to come close to doing, but not really. I I do think they're going to do what they can to encourage schools to open, though. And I think the president in this case has been pretty strong about that. And just so we're clear, the time frame over which this money is expected to be spent is this year? Uh, So you technically have more or less two years to spend the money as it goes out. But the idea is to spend it as quickly as you can. Okay. And and so for context, if memory serves the entire... U.S. education budget is something like $700 billion annually, right? So we're talking about a 30 or 40% increase here, right, in, in spending. Wow. And originally, I, I'd sort of thought this was, it was reported as $1.9 trillion is, is a negotiating position, but your sense is they might wind up putting a lot of that through. Well, the thing to note here is if you follow this reconciliation process that I've been talking about, you really don't have to negotiate. The negotiation occurs entirely among Democrats. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if the number goes down some, and uh, we haven't officially heard from folks like Senator Manchin that I was talking about from West Virginia yet, but I'll just say the path they're on is to bring the budget resolution to the floor in the next couple of days in both the House and Senate. Once they get that ball rolling, we'll have a pretty good indication of where, where it goes. Budget resolution then has to be followed with reconciliation. So it's not all going to happen with the budget resolution. They have to have another bill then that will be the real thing that matters. And that's where all this stuff will be uh, determined. The other thing I've got to ask you, this week is confirmation hearing, is it not for the Secretary of Education? Yes. Do you see any reason why he's not going to be approved? No. From every indication I've been given from everybody on all sides of the issue is uh, he seems like he's on a path for a very speedy confirmation. It could potentially, I kind of doubt it, but it could potentially happen as quickly as this week. Yeah. A couple of weeks down the road. My uh, own impression is that the Biden picked a relatively unknown candidate without any sharp elbows or sharp edges that I'm aware of. I agree. The other thing, though, that an old guy, again, like me, who's been around here and seen it, but what, what you watch for with the new people coming in is how are they going to do once they get here? A person like him seems to me to be kind of a mystery. Seems like a good guy, kind of guy that tries to bring people together and that kind of stuff. 
what is the unknown here is how he's going to deal with Washington and the wild and wacky ways that we get things done here. He's barely out of Connecticut, ever been out of Connecticut, and he was an assistant principal not long ago. That's right, which I think has an advantage of it gives him a a perspective of on the ground, real life work with real life people. It's just it doesn't give you any sense of how he's going to deal with OMB and how he's going to deal with Republicans and Democrats on the Hill and the crazy whole process out there. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. But, But so far, he's got thumbs up from pretty much everybody. He's going to need competent help. He also, as far as I can tell, knows nothing about the higher ed side of the job. That's right. And so far, as far as I can tell, uh, with one or two exceptions, everybody that's been appointed over there really doesn't know much about higher ed. And, you know, I'm sure as your the listeners to this know, the real money in the federal government and at the education department is in higher ed, not K-12. The higher ed money dwarfs K-12 by a, a factor of several. And it's full of its own layers of controversy about student loans, especially. Well, exactly. And I think a lot of people forget that the education department is one of the world's largest banks. And a lot of that policy is banking policy and collections and things like that, that rarely gets attention by folks on the outside. But in terms of how government runs and and the balance sheet of government is extraordinarily important and doesn't get the attention it deserves. I think the other question that we're more or less obligated to ask is, do you see any significant legislation coming out of this administration and Congress in the next two to four years on the education front? Obviously still a polarized time. Early indications is that there might be something uh, on the uh, early education front, perhaps not uh, universal preschool, but uh, potentially changes to the tax code um, that would help parents with young kids there's at least some support for that potentially on the center right, but the center right isn't what it used to be. So what are your thoughts on that subject in general? I should add, Vic, David has a baby. So early education. <laughs> I'm a compromised party. Yeah. How about then I'll start with this. In this reconciliation bill, there's likely to be a whole bunch more money for childcare. Fantastic. Yeah. Sounds like good policy. Well, there, there you go. Which The amount's a little unclear, but I bet it's at least going to be $20 billion dollars probably more. So you got that. In general, I I guess there's a handful of things I'd point to. One is, go back to where we were a second ago, is this stimulus bill or whatever we're calling it, all by itself, it's huge. And while it won't have tons of policy, it'll have tons of money in it. And that money will drive policy. Because again, it's the federal department that's still going to administer this stuff. They will have an ability to put conditions and strings and things like that on this money that goes beyond what's in the short little law that's going to pass. And they'll have a ton of an ability to impact what happens at the state and local level. I also think there's a real possibility that this same bill that we're talking about will include some additional funding for research, which is a, something that's been important to checker uh, for, for many years, uh, and could look at things like learning loss and other related issues, which I think all in all is a good thing. And there could be some real progress on that. Other issues that I think are going to be before the Congress that could get some attention, issue of broadband and how kids who are learning at home will have access to the internet and that kind of thing. It's got attention in the past, but I think it's going to continue to receive a lot of uh, support up there. And I think something will happen on that, maybe even in this bill. Workforce development, the whole issue of job training, which is, of course, very related to the high school education and also college education. 
I think there's a lot of discussion about that and could be a lot more money put there. Early childhood education has a chance and it even has a chance of finding its way into this big reconciliation bill because it's one of Senator Murray's top priorities, who's the new incoming chair of the Senate Health Committee. One other thing, it's not really a legislative thing, but I think is, uh, well, two other things. Let me take the other one first. In the higher ed space, there's a whole series of issues that could be coming forward. One is... Uh, has to do with uh, loan forgiveness. There's a big movement to lop off a bunch of uh, the outstanding loan balance for a lot of folks. Some want it to go to the level of a $50,000 loan forgiveness to folks. Others, it could be a $10,000 loan forgiveness. And it's something that could be done, according to some, administratively by the education secretary. Wouldn't even have to go through Congress, even though that costs several hundred billion dollars as well. There are a whole series of other higher education issues having to do with for-profit schools, what kind of accountability should be undertaken, what kind of data should be collected, and how the data is used, things like that. The last issue I j- just want to raise, because I know it's important to a lot of your folks there that follow these issues, is the, is the issue of uh, accountability in K-12 education and whether or not to issue waivers on the, the assessment waivers for the second year in a row uh, as a result of this COVID crisis. You know, Secretary DeVos was pretty strong before she left saying no waivers, you still got to do tests. I think these people are likely to get uh, weak knees and due to pressure from outside. And I wouldn't be surprised if waivers are granted. This isn't a legislative thing. It's more a Department of Education thing. But if we start granting assessment waivers, which I don't understand the argument for it, given all the stuff that's going on here. But if we start granting these waivers and we're also waiving the accountability on the backside in terms of you know what to do with the information you get from the assessments, our federal accountability system is just going to be in shambles after two years of waivers and two, two years of accountability waivers. Who knows what's coming next? But clearly something's going to have to be done at the federal level, either just throw in the towel altogether and don't worry about assessments and standards and accountability or build a new system uh, to replace what's there. Because right now nothing's happening and it's just confusing to everybody. I have to note that we have a recent Fordham study that shows that the accountability system can tolerate one year of missing data and still do things like vital calculations of growth in student learning but it cannot tolerate two consecutive years of no data. You can't then make the calculations that you need to know whether the school is doing anybody any good. So it's a big deal whether these second round of waivers are granted and then whether states ask for them. I could not agree more, Checker. It's very bothersome to me. Again, I I get waiving the accountability on the back end, but not the assessments. I mean, we need this kind of information. And it's hard for me to see what comes next. If And the, the one other thing I, I guess I would add is I don't think we're likely to have a uniform national policy on this. I think these waivers will be kind of piecemeal. It's like New York just re- requested a waiver. We could see another one from Georgia and Michigan, a few other, but, but other states are going forward with assessments. So it's like, you know, we could have decent enough data, as your report said, in half the states and the awful situation in another half of the states. I, this, is, this is a lot to digest. I think David's about to tell us we're out of time. <laughs> it has been a wonderful conversation here with Vic. There's obviously a lot going on, but we will leave it there for now. Vic, thank you again for joining us. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. Uh, I hear there's a Super Bowl coming up. 
I had to remind you of that. I'm just going to be transparent with all of our listeners that we were trying to come up with like what we can banter about. And I said, uh, hello, David, it's the Super Bowl this week. Yeah. And I believe my question was who won? Yes. Uh, you're a soccer guy and I'm, I'm, I'm a, a soccer guy, guy, but I know, I know who Brett Favre is and I known who he is for long enough to know that I should be impressed that he's in the Super Bowl. Uh, uh, 20 years ago when he was in it. Yes. That is incredible. It really is. Well, yeah, I mean, it is, it's gonna, there aren't going to be many fans, right? At least in person, but hopefully it'll be a good no, game. But it's a matchup of two phenomenal quarterbacks. So, hey, I'm, I'm excited about it. We good. Got the young guy and the old guy that are both great going head to head. So, hey, it's a classic narrative. Well, in other classic narratives, see that transition? What do you yeah. got for us today in the research minute? We have a new study by researchers out of the University of Arkansas. They are examining the effect of school district consolidation on student achievement in their home state. Uh, I think the prevailing sentiment is that consolidations result in positive economies of scale, but there's little research on that particular outcome, nor on the impact of students. So it caught my eye. Uh, We know that districts and schools are not randomly selected for consolidation, uh, which has made the topic difficult to study. But in this case, they're able to leverage a natural experiment via the passage of Arkansas Act 60, which was passed in 2004. It was the result of a school finance litigation, like a bunch of litigation in the late 90s and early 2000s. And the uh, Arizona Supreme Court, like other courts across the land at that time, ruled that the state's funding system was unconstitutional. The governor ended up proposing school district consolidation as a potential remedy to reduce district administrative cost and presumably provide, you know, some more funding for particular kids. The law required all consolidation of districts that had for two consecutive years enrollment of less than 350 kids. So this Enrollment threshold allowed the analysts to make use of a sharp regression discontinuity design whereby students in districts with enrollment of less than 350 in the two years immediately prior to the passage of the act are assigned to the treatment group. Students in the remaining districts comprise the control group. The idea is that districts just above the Act 60 enrollment cutoff should be essentially the same as the consolidated districts just below the cutoffs. And their models allow uh, for grade three through eight students to be nested within districts, and they include grade and year fixed effects. Wow. So I've never been to off. Arkansas, but uh, 350 is small, right? That yes. sounds very small. That's It's Arkansas. They limit their analysis to cons- uh, consolidations that occurred in 2005, right after the passage of the law to prevent any potential gaming of enrollment data. And the first year that the law was in effect, 59 districts were required to consolidate, just FYI, affecting districts in nearly every region of the state. Schools were not required to close per se, but there were 16 closures in consolidated districts in 2005 and 105 closures by 2011. Key finding, uh, consolidation has null or very small positive impacts in both math and ELA. They also look to see if impacts vary over time under the premise that students may require several years to adjust to their new surroundings. But again, impacts are mostly insignificant or modest over four years post-consolidation. Unfortunately, they cannot use that RD design to examine the financial impact you know, on economies of scale since most districts merge with others that were above the threshold. So it's ah, a- Ah, shucks, okay, yeah. Disentangle this out. 
So they do a descriptive analysis, uh, comparing the expenditure trends for districts affected by consolidation. That's again, both the consolidated and the receiving districts. They compare them to the unaffected districts to see if the affected districts show substantial changes that deviate from the broader state trends. The descriptive analysis shows that they do not. So both affected and unaffected districts, for example, see comparable increases in spending per pupil They also see similar shares of certified teachers and other staff, which was kind of interesting. They say, though, they're going to do a more rigorous analysis of costs later. They're going to have better data so they can get away from just these descriptive findings. Uh, But they conclude, at least based on this initial stab, they're going to do a bunch more studies, I think, on on this particular uh, legislation. Uh, But for now, they say the, the law didn't appear to have helped students, but it didn't harm them either. Interesting. I guess my my first question is, and, and maybe you know you may not be able to answer this completely, but what are the posited savings? Where is that supposed to come from? Right? Is it is it things like delivering food to the cafeterias, or, or is it? I mean, I thought that it mundane. Was, I thought it was admin. You know, I thought it was school closures and and admin. Okay. You know, principals and assistant principals and central office staff. I mean, that was my that's my intuition. But yeah, they didn't require school closures, which was kind of, I don't know, I guess I just assumed that was what was going to be happening. But there were 16 closures uh, in 2005. And what did we say? 59 consolidations? The assumption that the schools are too small or that the district is too small. It's that the districts are too small, right? So presumably it's getting rid of sort of duplicative central office staff, that sort of thing. Right. That's what I thought. But then they had this weird finding at the end that said that, um, you know, these shares of non- teaching staff were comparable, which made me think, I mean, you know, these buckets of categories that we talk about, uh, but I thought that that would include admin. Yeah, obviously, we we would need to get way beneath the hood to really understand what's going on. I mean, one thing that does occur to me, though, right, is it's the 21st century. And when did this happen? When when did the law take effect? The law was in 2004. Okay, well, hmm, that's been a while. I was going to say, with the internet... <laughs> And even without it, I suppose, I think there's substantial scope for districts to cooperate and or contract out, right? So, you know, I think the theory is that if you need certain functions to be performed, um, but you only need one for a district of 5,000, it doesn't make sense to have the same staffer in 5,000 person districts. But that assumes, you know, that you're actually doing it in-house as opposed to hiring somebody who serves all five of those districts or, you know, coordinating online, uh, you know, curricular resources or whatever it is. So I don't know if I'm surprised or not by the findings, but I guess it just, it seems to me that we can't necessarily make the assumption that that all these things are necessarily happening at the district level. They could be happening at the super district level. You know, how feasible it is to, you know, realize cost savings in some of these rural districts that presumably consolidated with the, I don't, we don't know how far these districts really are, you know, and how much trouble it took to, to consolidate. I don't know. I just got to thinking about just the special issue of rural district consolidation. Yeah. Well, and the study may not have covered this, but is there a cost associated with consolidation? There must be. Yeah, you would think, right? Yeah. (laughs) I've never consolidated a district personally, but it sounds expensive. If you have to let go staff, don't you offer them a severance package? I don't know if that happens in schools. Uh, Who knows? Okay. Well, but it didn't really do any harm either. It did not. Okay. And hey, by the standards of, uh, you know, the average education reform, that might be considered a win. So (laughs) 
I'm just kidding. I okay. know, I know. But hey, it's, it's not a topic that gets a lot of research and analysis. So it's good to know, right? And they're, they're going to do some more good stuff. And maybe I'll come back with a more rigorous analysis of the cost implications, which I think is kind of what we're both more curious about. Yeah, well, and it, it would be good to answer whatever questions we're trying to answer here, right? Because as I'm sure many of our listeners know, district size varies spectacularly from between Florida, you know, which has maybe 20 districts or whatever it is, and versus Arizona or Pennsylvania or Michigan, Ohio. wherever it is. And, you, you know, you have these tiny, tiny little districts. So it's intuitive to me that tiny little districts might not be the way to go. But I can also imagine that really big districts would just get to be unwieldy. And I think there's some research on that, too. So Right. It'd be nice to at least answer the question and have right. you know, be like, in a position you're to give saying, some Is there an optimal optimal size by which consolidation is beneficial? Is that kind of what you mean, David? Yeah, all of which is assuming that you know the district is is your theory of action, right, Amber? Right. So, right. which it isn't always around here. <laughs> okay, well we could probably do this forever, but I think that's all the time that we have for today. Until next time, I'm Amber Northern, and I'm David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.